From ThatShelf.com, this is Black Hole Films. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. What's a black hole film, you ask? Well, you know those films you always meant to get around to watching, but you never did for whatever reason? Well, that's what they are. And this podcast is all about embracing them and checking those films off our lists and talking about them and whatever else happens to come up. I'm Canadian filmmaker Jeremy Lalonde, and I will be your host. You can follow me on Twitter at LalondeJeremy, or check out my website, JeremyLalonde.com, for more information on me and my projects. If you like the show, please subscribe to it, rate, review it, and leave a comment on whatever platform it is you're listening. It really does make a difference in helping to get more ears tuning in. And if you like this show, check out the others on the ThatShelf.com family of podcasts. And without further delay, let's get into this week's film. This is episode 95, and today I'm joined by Saul Pincus, who is a filmmaker that made a movie a couple years ago called Nocturne that you can check out on iTunes and other VOD formats, I believe. And we're going to sit down and watch a film together. All right, so we're sitting down to watch Throne of Blood. I'm Jeremy. I have not seen this movie. I'm Saul, and I have not seen this movie, which sort of amazes me, too, because I've seen a lot of Kurosawa. But not, not all Kurosawa. Yeah, this has been my year of Kurosawa. I realize I've watched probably 18 of his films this year. Yeah, you've seen more than I have. Yeah, and I think this is probably, if not before, this will be now make him probably the filmmaker I've done on the podcast the most, because I think this is number five or six. Now, do you have the do you have all the Blu-rays? Is that why you've been watching all of them? Like, I have you been collecting them. Yeah. Or? Okay. You've been collecting the Criterion Blu-rays. Right. I never got the the the, box. I, the big twenty-five box set. Yeah. Which now you can't get unless you want to spend a a fortune. Uh, yeah. But I I can only imagine, although now it won't be worth buying because I have over half of them for sure. I imagine there's going to be like a Bergman type set that they do at some point. Uh, of, based on yeah of all the Kurosawa doing like a Blu-ray version of that 25 box set but in case I want to go home tonight I'm sure Amazon will take my money they'll take your money if you don't <laughs> mind spending like a thousand dollars I think at it's, least it's a ridiculous amount of money well the first edition of the Bergman uh, box and this is the uh, very end of December now uh, 2018 is already $863 on Amazon someone's selling it for that so for how much get $863 yeah I got it for Christmas yeah I know and, and I know what the cost is but it's yeah. but it's a, but the thing is I, I don't know what makes it because they've already said they're going to do a second run and have them out this spring yeah so it's like but that's collector mentality now that's true know? I will say one of my discs does have like a weird um, glitch glitch on not a glitch just the printing is like slightly off it's not uh, it, that makes it even more valuable I know right <laughs> my son was like oh you should ask him for a replacement I was like are you crazy yeah, no. this is the this is the little one of those little rare touches it's like this is this is perfect this is what you want this uh, proves that it's it's first edition yeah when the discog of blu-rays emerges uh, do you know what Discog discogs is no oh yeah, yeah yeah discog is used uh like used lps and used cds and used recordings and it's you know when that when that emerges for Blu-rays, if it doesn't already, uh, I have no doubt you'll you'll fetch a pretty penny. So hold on to that. But yeah, no, I haven't. So I haven't. There's a lot I haven't seen. Uh, of course, I, I did see the last five movies like in quick succession. I actually saw his last five movies theatrically, uh, and then a few on video as they as they emerged. Some of which didn't like all the way from Dreams. I'm just, yeah, I'm just, I think I might end up watching Dreams tomorrow night because it's the last one I have because I went, I've been picking them up on all of the Criterion Flash sales and uh, between Dreams and the Throne of Blood, I think I'm caught up. I watched uh, Yojimbo and Sanjuro over the holidays. Yeah. 
so I, I knocked those two out, and then and then I was waiting for someone to watch Throne of Blood with me. But other than that, yes. Other than that, I'm caught up. And now, but it's also that point where it's like, oh, I'm out of new Kurosawa movies. Now new, I'm just well, yeah, that's about it, isn't it? Well, that's yeah, <laughs> fair. But it's a, but it's one of those things where you're like, I remember the first time like I watched The Apartment, and then after it was like, oh, I want to watch something like that. Right. Again, you're like, oh, right, no, there's nothing like that. Right. It exists on an island of its own, and you're never, it's like, you're never going to chase that, that rush again, right? But, but there are some very interesting things as you go into, or we can talk about this afterwards if we get a chance, but um, there are some really interesting books on Kurosawa that yeah. I've been through. I just read his, autom- something like an autobiography. Yeah. Yeah. Which is great. Which is great. And it's but he won't talk about anything after Rashomon, because he's like, I hate all those people, and they piss me off. Yeah. <laughs> and well, I'll just end up being... Angry the whole time. Kurosawa went through, like, Kurosawa and I think both him and Bergman each attempted suicide. Yeah. Yeah. I think Kurosawa has tried twice. Am I right? I there was so. some time, there was a point in the 70s right yeah. before he did, like, Ran and Dreams and he yeah. was saved for all those. Because he was make, had to make films out of the country and stuff. He, it, it, the, um, uh... What I with the one book that I remember is really that's really good is uh, the Emperor and the Wolf. If you haven't read it, but no, I think Stuart Galbraith is the writer. Um, it came out about ten years ago, roughly. Uh, it may be in the library if you okay. get a chance. Um, but I have a copy. It's like I don't know, it's eight hundred, nine hundred pages. It's like delicious. Do you know what's what's great about it is, and this is why we're watching uh, uh, Throne of Blood, of course, here fairly early on in his collaboration with Toshiro Mifune. It's about the Emperor Kurosawa and the Wolf Mifune, and basically, it's the story of each of their careers and the and the intersections of their careers through their lives, and and how and why they happened, and and what Mifune became as a person uh and how that became difficult uh, not just for him but obviously kurosawa probably became a more difficult person too who knows but that was really you know that's what's great about the book and it's just really researched and you're like i just if you want to know about mifuni you're like wow i didn't know he you know all this other stuff not just what he did as an actor but he had a production company to support and he did all these things for certain reasons and it's interesting yeah because the two of them are almost like to me like linked eternally yeah hips at the yeah. Hip. yeah, for sure. There's no question. Um, you know, uh, there are many other actors uh, that I can think of. Uh, Takashi Shimura. Um, uh, you know, there's an actor who's in Ron, who's in a number of other film, his other films, who is a much thinner guy. And it kind of, uh, I'm trying to remember his name. Um, there are many other actors who mean a lot to Zuf, but uh, but specifically Mufuni is the, the showiest the scariest, uh, the most delicious. Uh, oh, he's know. just so good, and just his yeah. range of of performances is kind of amazing too. When you when you mm-hmm. compare like something like High and Low to, he's in the High and Low, right? I'm not not crazy. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. not crazy. But at that point, what's interesting about that just to intersect there is that once again the book where he was at that point in his career was he had obligations, and so he understood that role. In a way, he never would have understood it ten years earlier. Ten years earlier, yeah. But yeah, but you were saying for sure. It, he has he has enormous range and he's fascinating. It's just so, captivating. Like you just watch, just watching Yujimbo and Sanjuro, and I was like, fuck, I could just watch you, like just do anything. That's the thing. You could watch paint 
try and and this is the film a film I saw uh, a few months ago well maybe four months ago now which was uh, uh, Hell in the Pacific John Borman's movie have you seen it no um, so Hell in the Pacific is, has a very simple pitch it's two guys during World War II uh, find themselves stranded on a Pacific island one of them's an American and one of them's a Japanese and they have to they have to reckon with that yeah and it's it, so Lee Marvin is the American, and Toshiro Mufuni is the, is the Japanese. And if you can imagine, if you can just imagine, you don't need dialogue. With What's it guys. called again? It's called Hell in the Pacific. I'm, so, I'm, so, I'm hooked. I'm, I, so John Borman. Let's watch that. Do you know who John? Yeah, we yeah. can watch that. We can watch that too. John <laughs> Borman is uh, you know John Borman's work, right? No, not really. I don't think so. Okay, so John Borman is Deliverance is probably his, oh, okay, best, yeah, known, yeah, his yeah. best known movie, um, but Point Blank, the original Point Blank from the late nineteen sixties, which is a film that I still have yet to see. I'm sorry, I it's haven't okay. seen it. Have you seen it? No. Maybe we that's could another, watch that. That's another black hole. <laughs> We're gonna be here for a long time. This, okay. this suddenly became a trilogy <laughs> podcast <laughs> night of, of films to see. But then he did Hell in the Pacific, which was actually shot on a Pacific island and is really mostly without dialogue. And is phenomenal. It's shot by uh, um, Conrad Hall. Okay. Who, yep. Yeah, I know. Conrad, you know yeah. yeah. And uh, uh, I think Lala Schifrin has music in it, but very little music. It's very mostly sparse. It's very sparse. And, it's, what it, and what it is, John Warman really has a way with um, nature. Man in nature is his thing. And the way this thing is shot, it's just so primal and so lush and so amazing. Anyway... Mufuni fits perfectly into it. And my whole point of bringing this up is actually about Mufuni. And Mufuni is a guy who I understand would be the prep guy for uh, kamikaze pilots during World War II. He was in the he was in Japanese Navy, I think Navy, military anyway, probably Navy. <laughs> it makes sense with the pilots. And he would be the guy to give like to get their uniforms prepped or their gear prepped or something. He was like the assistant to the guy who was going to get in the plane and bye-bye, never yeah. see you again. So I, and I think maybe at some point his number was going to come up, but I don't, now I'm not, now I just don't remember what I read 10 years ago very well. But, but the point is that that's really what he did. And I think when, when you have people who are in that situation, uh, become actors 20 years later, become, you know, who they are. I think they become very interesting people. And I can't, you know, you can't help but see that yeah. reality, that experience translate itself uh, onto the screen. And that certainly, I think that commitment that, that, you know what I'm saying? The intensity yeah. of that, the understanding of life and death situations in a way that an actor has to stretch to understand hundred percent that, that somebody who's been in those situations understands fundamentally and maybe possibly can reach another level. And that's one reason why Hell in the Pacific is so interesting because both Lee Marvin and Toshiro Mufuni were in the war. Lee Marvin actually, they shot that on the island that he was, he was on as an infantry guy and a bunch of his guys, a bunch of his people, his, uh, his group had died on that Jeez. island. Like it just, anyway, we got to see that movie, but yeah. the, uh, or I've seen it. It's wonderful. But as far as Mufuni is concerned, so much of that intensity, so much of that experience comes through in his performance. So much commitment comes through in his performance. Yeah, I think that's true. That like Everything. you said, it's like you you can actors that have lived and had experiences just 
they can tap into something primal without doing a lot. Yeah. You know, which is always fascinating when you can tell, as opposed to just filling the gaps and making shit up. It's fascinating. And still there are wonderful actors who can do that too. Yeah. yeah. So what do you know about Throne of Blood? Macbeth. Yeah, that's all I know too. I know Macbeth. I know it's uh, not the first widescreen picture. And, it uh, is 235, right? I don't, I don't even I don't know, know We'll find out. Yeah. And I know it's like there's something to do with, uh, I'm, I hope I'm not going to say it wrong, but no cinema? That's correct. It was um, done in style, movement and style based on that. Yeah. Uh, that much, that I know. Um, what else do I know? I know it was... Or no theater, I should say. I said cinema, but yeah. I know it was shot on the steps of Mount Fuji. They literally built the castle on the steps of Mount Fuji on terrain that was on some kind of angle where it was almost impossible to like to shoot like it was just a real pain they didn't have enough crew apparently the u.s military base which was nearby they had sent some guys over to help them it was also i think shot in studio as well um i think it's i've heard it's very atmospheric i also hear that at the end of the film there's a bunch of arrows flying and they're real uh the the professional archers you know that's like you've seen Seven Samurai right yes like there's that scene at the end with the rain and the horses and everything and you're you're like like, how else could you shoot that but for real yeah and you're watching some horse died making this movie at least uh, maybe a person and we don't know about it but there's no way like it's just phenomenal when you look at stuff like from that era just knowing that there's no way to do that other than just to do it and also you're you're looking at you're going Kurosawa was a perfectionist which take am I looking at yeah (laughs) Mostly, probably one <laughs> exactly, for the entrance, yeah. but but am I looking? But really, is there were there ten takes? Is this fifteen? You know, yeah. I don't know. I just don't. We'll never, and we'll never know because they won't. I mean, maybe we will. Maybe someone will go into the files and we'll get that information. But there's so much we know about today's movies that we can that the filmmakers were alive long enough to like rec- either record an interview or commentary or something, or they weren't like Kurosawa who basically just wanted to put stuff away. He was yeah. of the generation like, yeah, we made the movie, you liked it. You know, yeah, move and, on, you know? and if it was something super technical like that, where it was just like, oh, we did it 15 times, but only the last two worked. Yeah, he won't remember that or care about it. Yeah, we're not, we didn't bother printing the other takes. They never got developed. Yeah. You know, maybe we didn't even take proper records of it. <laughs> we just know which ones were. Right. Some I mean, the audio. Most of those guys won't, and they were guys, most of them, won't really go into that level of detail. They didn't live it like that. I do remember Wilder saying how many takes it took to get... Uh, Marilyn Monroe to yeah. do a proper line and for some like it hot I think it was but when you look at like people like Kurosawa um, and and Bergman for sure like these guys that made you know 20-30 films or more you know yeah. they're I mean Bergman made like what 60 he was in, in, like, he made a ton and a lot of them are shorts but he made at least 39 features yeah that, that's how many are on that that um, mm-hmm. criterion set uh, but Kurosawa was you know churning out a movie a year at least Mm-hmm. You know, and so it's like he's not laboring and, and not labor. He is laboring, but he's not he's doing it. He's moving on. You know, mostly these were people, too, who lived life differently than we live it today. We live in an environment where we have so many we have access to so much of this thing on our on our bookshelves and so many of our, you know, films, not just the criterion versions, but every kind of version we yeah. can want. We have the history there for us. These people were living in a time. We're talking about now probably the 40s, the 50s, the thir- well, certainly before the 40s, 50s, 60s, where all of these things were considered of the moment only. 
they would play for a month or two and be gone. Yeah. They they were, were. There may have been a few film societies, but they weren't going to result in anything financially as far as more people really caring about the movie. So they, there was, other than the television sale, which was a very un, going to be a very uncommon thing in the U.S. or across the world for something that was made in Japan, they were considered fly-by-night things. This is the thing that, this is why at Kurosawa's early career films, it sort of fit into programming in Japanese. So I mean, this is another thing I was reading about Japanese cinema, yeah. which I thought to be really interesting. At the time this was made, Throne of Blood was made, you know, Japanese people would go to, th- go to the theaters they would be smoking in the theaters. They would walk in and walk out as they went. They would go to the evening programs. But it was totally disposable to them. Yeah. It was just that was the environment. It was not, maybe not exactly that way in the U.S. But but in terms of what I was reading, I was reading a fascinating, where was I reading it? Fascinating anyway. Um, it went into great detail about that time in Japan and what it was like. So fascinating, anyway. but but they were also just you know they were just workers. He was like he'd finish a film and then start the next one on Monday, and that was another thing too is about what it meant to be a Japanese person in that culture and not necessarily elevating yourself yeah. too far above the average person and what that meant. Right, that was a very big what it meant to to be a human being. Uh, yeah, because they were so, studio employees, right? So he just would have been on salary, I think. It wasn't like he got paid per project. I don't sort of at that time. I think there was transition happening. He owned, he co-owned Toho at some point, and that, yeah. and then it became a big deal for him to. I don't even think was it this film. It may have been this film. I don't even think he was supposed to supposed to direct this film. I think he was supposed to produce it, and someone else was going to direct it. But they said, no, it's going to be too expensive. You have to do it. Because I think it was, I think this was part of like just again, Kurosawa held, as we know, not just in film history but also in Japan, a certain position, and that position was very rare. By the time he became successful, very successful at this point, like probably late fifties, early sixties, and he owned Toho, which of course would make Godzilla, having nothing to do with him, uh, but 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 he had these 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 things about him which would make him which would make it possible for him to be considered the great Kurosawa. And that, I think, put him in a different position than other filmmakers, for sure. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, he, yeah. Was, he was the household name in terms he of... also was mercur- very mercurial. And, and you know, did you read, did, have you read about um, Tora, 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 the American co-production with 20th Century Fox? No. So he was supposed to do... I'm trying to remember who was supposed to direct the American version... But originally, Daryl Zanuck, who was the guy at Fox, basically said, okay, he had directed The Longest Day, right? And Daryl Zanuck had been in, the, been in the Second World War as a general and whatever, and probably doing the propaganda campaigns and stuff. But the point is, is that, the, is that uh, uh, they set it up, Torah, 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 as the first movie told from the Japanese perspective and the American perspective. It was going to cross-cut sequences directed by a great American director and... Akira Kurosawa. Yeah. And Kurosawa started shooting, but then finally said, nope, can't do it, just can't do it, can't do it. But Toho co-produced the movie. So they ended up getting another director who, who did the Japanese sections. But it, but but I'm giving you an example of how he could be very mercurial. He said, this is an incredible project, first collaboration between the U.S. and, you know, ever, and, and Japan. And just, nah, in the middle of a couple of days after he started, and you know, just didn't want it. And obviously he was going through personal things we talked about. Well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He took he well. He just everything shifted at one point. He went from making a film a year to all of a sudden long breaks and being far more 
picky and anal and, and, and not doing it in Japan. Yeah. And being away from, from his culture and then coming back to his culture. Um, and then, you know, having issues with his site, which led him to get basically have co-directors making sure that, that things were as they need to be. And then his last bunch of movies, the last bunch of Kira Kurosawa movies were directed by a man who was legally blind. That's kind of amazing. Yeah. Considering how much they hold together tonally. You haven't been there yet. I haven't seen them yet. No, I, no, no. Anyway. So Throne of Blood. Throne of Blood. Well, we should watch it. And then we'll talk more. That's a good idea. Okay. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. All right. We just finished. Yes, we did. What a beast of a performance from a fune. From a beast. From a beast, yeah. I was saying when we, when we first started, I always, uh, having just rewatched uh, some of the samurai movies, I always laugh when I see the that samurai haircut with like they've they've shaved their head in the middle. But Mufune never ever has that because he's like, fuck no. it, no, I'm not cutting my hair. <laughs> You're like asking Chuck Norris or Charles Bronson to do it. You kind of you take one step, look at him, and go, "I'm not going to walk down that long hall and ask that question." But there's 30 other guys that have that look that are all more than willing to do it. But it's, sure. it just makes me think of like Caesar Romero painting over his mustache as the yeah. Joker, and it's like, yeah. "No, I'm not doing it." No, no, no. He's wonderful as usual. Um, torn, conflicted, guilty. All yeah, and, and and Macbeth is one of the my Shakespeare black holes where I don't know. I know like the trope things about Macbeth. So you haven't seen the Polanski? No, so I neither, don't know. Neither have I. I I just know the basic like uh, main plot points of Macbeth. I've never actually the closest I've ever seen to a performance of Macbeth was like fifteen years ago. Uh, there was this awesome theater company that always did these fringe plays that was called the Wild uh, World of Shakespeare Sports or something like that. Mm -hmm. And they did a soccer one on a soccer field mm -hmm. where it was like Scotland versus England versus Italy. So it was like Othello. It was all tragedies. Mm -hmm. And they were playing this tournament. And so they kind of found a way to compress the plot lines and do them at the same time. It was a fascinating way to do it. And very entertaining. And uh, anyway, so that's a visual thing. Visual thing, yeah. yeah and they were yeah, actually yeah. soccer players. There were four soccer teams. Yeah. And as they're playing, it was the color commentators that were basically giving summaries of the plays. <laughs> but they they were they were being carried out during a soccer game. Phenomenal. And it was an hour long. It was but an hour long play, and you got to see like three soccer matches right. in the middle of it. Anyway, what's interesting <laughs> about this is uh, I think the reason that I think that. I was going to say classicism, but not really classicism so much as Macbeth and the time necessary to understand the way guilt weaves its way through these characters and, and through, through Mifuni particularly is kind of allowable because of the, of that sort of period in Japanese history they're portraying where it was all about pageantry. It was all about careful movement. It was all about, you know, it, it, it you nothing happens fast in this movie. No, and that's you know that's one of the things that that, that allows this kind of story to work. You know, um, stories of the occult in a way. I mean, that's really what this is about. This is about. You could argue that that they never saw 
the spirit in the woods. And they really just sort of had this weird dream or weird thought. And then, okay, fine. Maybe they heard it from someone. And the story exists completely without that spirit. And yeah, because it's mostly about the, you know, it's about guilt. I mean, it's about, it's about being motivated by, by what you think might happen versus being open to fate, not being open to, or rather open to fate. What am I saying? It's late. Right. But you're saying, so you're saying the movie, the story could exist without them having seen the spirit or just... What I'm saying is their motivations could exist, not the story. Right. Their motivations could exist in, a, in another, like in another version of this story. Wouldn't be as interesting. No. But what I'm saying is that, is that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Yeah. Because when I think about this, it makes me think of like that idea of, of you know, once you've, once you've put a thought into someone's brain... You've poisoned the well forever, that's right. that's and right. and and the question, and I guess the the challenge I have with this is that we basically meet, um, uh, I'm not gonna remember Mickey and uh, how do you, how do they say Mafuni's character's name? Uh, Maybe it says in the, uh, anyway, it doesn't matter. Mafuni, we'll just say yeah. Mafuni. People will know because he's Mafuni. I mean, yeah. it's no matter what he does, because it's not like they do anything to deserve coming upon the spirit, other than getting lost in the woods. Well, yes, except as, except because the, the, the pace of the story as an audience member, you have the opportunity to think about it a little bit. And I was going back and I was like, well, what did they do? Well, I don't know. They <laughs> commanded a lot of arm, a lot of you know forces to kill people. But no, you know nothing. But about you don't the get us. But that's just. But that's just their job. That's their role. Like, we're not. We and don't. We, innocence. Yeah, we don't yeah, see. That way. We don't see them do anything wrong in no. that. It's not like they they deserve to be cursed by any means. No, I mean, but they, you could argue that men of war are always cursed by the battles and the blood. And, yeah, and and, and 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 what's what they're coming in. You see, the, it's interesting is that they make a point. Kurosawa makes a point. His writers make a point. In this film, they make a point of two people coming across that spirit, not one. Yeah. So the two people have seen it. That makes it somehow legit. I think as I would, opposed to one, I would argue that. That, that works for it makes it more legit for me because in the sense that it's easy for one person to go was I dreaming did I really see it but when two people can corroborate yeah it's like there's it's, it's very rare that someone would have a shared dream right except that you talk to I mean I haven't personally spoken but I've read about this and that you know you talk to to people who have fought in war and they all share the same pretty much the same stories and the same feelings and perhaps that was a nod to that, I don't know. But as I was saying earlier, too, is that many of the, I mean, certainly in many of these people, if not had fought in war, had dealt directly with, with war because of, you know, Japan's place in the Second World War. Yeah. And the nature of probably starvation and other things at times and limitations. And so you could argue that the collective experience of war having been fought was something in the minds of everyone watching this movie, of all audiences. And that was a sort of a supposition on Kurosawa's part and that of his writers to that they would come into it and almost have a shared sense of either guilt or, or remorse or or just memories yeah. of that and that that's not something we have we're told they're bat they're 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 they've been in battle but what do we know we've never been in battle and we don't know the scope of their battle the size of it anything Nothing. like that yeah. yeah it's fascinating too um that because what was really interesting to me when I read Kurosawa is something like an autobiography. 
him talking about how at the beginning of his career, just when he was coming up and coming, going from being a writer and an assistant director and finally getting his directing, it was while they were still at war or just before the war. Yeah. And so at that point in time, you could make two kinds of films. You could either make a film that was essentially a propaganda film, and he made one of those yeah. and hates it, and it's not a great film. Uh, the Most Beautiful, I think it's called. Mm-hmm. Um, and Or you could make samurai movies. And you can make movies about the past. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, he would tend to... And load it with a message. And load it with a message and get away with that. But yeah. it's interesting now, this is now, you know, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years after the war. And instead of going, you know, telling stories about the war itself, he's still using samurais as metaphors for his own experiences or, or the experiences of people he knows during wartime. And he'll use, and he'll use that. Uh, you know, for a long... Yeah, no, I understand. Yeah, but it's, yeah, yeah, but, but sure. it'd be fascinating to see him do, like, his own passive glory. Or his own, you know... Yeah, and that shot was definitely, right? <laughs> With the drums going and, and, and the army and moving into the woods. I mean, yeah, for sure. Um... What he would have done with just it would have been because he he certainly made modern movies. He made movies, you know, One Wonderful Sunday, I Live in Fear. He made movies about post war um, Japan and uh, talking about the war literally, mm-hmm. um, but never with when it came to battle scenes or never like you know. Yeah, he's kind of fascinating. I agree. It never felt like he was he was putting us into the thick of things in a direct way. Yeah. That they were always about. They were always about noble people handling. It's it's also, but it's also interesting. Of course, Kurosawa was always talking about things from the standpoint of the average person. Yeah, by virtue of his two or three or four guys hanging out, <laughs> making some social, making some commentary. Yeah, uh, before a pivotal point, as he does here as well. Before near the end of the picture, um, you know, sort of just sort of that's being part of what he does as well to make things bring things down to earth but really just sort of be very expository as well i was going to say though um earlier on we were just talking about something before uh Uh-oh. getting late it's getting late um no 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 what was it what was it what was it we were talking about, we were talking the about war. no we were actually you were talking for a moment about him coming up and you were talking about something about it and something like an autobiography. And in that book, he says, yeah, there's a, there's a line, which I'll paraphrase, which is that when he was, I think, I'm not sure where he was, but he was with his brother and his brother, either his brother couldn't look at something horrible or he couldn't do it, but maybe his brother taught him. Is that possible? He said, if you look at, if, if you look at something, if you don't look at something, it'll worse than if you do look at something, yeah. something horrible. That sounds familiar. Yeah. And I just see that sort of laced through his work as far as facing things, as far yeah. as his whole idea of drama and how he makes that work. Um, the other thing I was going to say, you mentioned uh, about his, uh, about coming up as an assistant director. It used to be that, you know, in, in Japanese cinema, it was about mentorship. Yeah. It was about, I mean, no one, no one says they're going to be an AD, an AD, which is short form for an assistant director. Therefore, I am going to be a director. Very few people say, say that, you know, in, in today's world. No, and it's because it's a different kind of job, really. Right. And there they were really studying under masters constantly and bringing themselves up. So yeah. it's fascinating. Time. Yeah, reading that book, we really opened my eyes in that. And, and also just about how much they were just, I mean, he was just basically talking about he, 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 
he would write a script so he could get enough sake so he could drink himself to sleep yeah. most nights in the early parts of his career. Yeah. And then one day decided, was like, I should get married. You, that girl looks good. Yeah. You know, just very much, very practical. Um, early Kurosawa. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, if you ever, do you ever see him in an interview or you ever see him have, like, speaking? I, I hate to judge someone, but you look at the guy and you say, like, he's constantly kind of, you know, smoking. He's got to have something. He's got to... These guys smoked like chimneys. They, you know, they, they were very much a part of their, not just smoke, but like, you know, part of their um, ecosystem. And it was like, a, it was not an easy job or a healthy job. It was factory work, you know? Yeah. Like, I doubt shooting this was factory work, but it was, you know, it comes from a, 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 an age of filmmakers for whom that was very much what it was. But anyway, getting back to this film. Yeah, yeah. It's... Uh, you know, the, the use of fog in this film is fascinating. Um, in some ways, it's pretty obvious. In other ways, not so much. I have to say, for anyone who hasn't seen this movie, I'll have to spoil one thing about it. See, which, spoil away. Yeah, yeah. So the end of the movie, with the trees approaching, I can't imagine the hell they must have gone through to get that shot. Shots. But, yeah. like, to get the setup and to basically get the result they got. On such a scale, it's gorgeous. It's a, it's such yeah. a subtle trick, yeah. And then, but it's not. But it's also not a trick. Like I watched it, going, oh, okay. I know it's the guys, guys posing is posing with the trees and walking, and like, okay, I get it. But, but just to get the shot, like I don't think we think that that I don't think we realize today because we're thinking, oh, anything can be enhanced. Anything can be touched. No, everything you're seeing is on on the screen. Everything was done. Everything was done for real, you know. And also, there's stagecraft when the uh, when the spirit disappears at the top of the picture, just takes their jacket, opens their jacket, and then you're out of there. There might be a jump cut in there, but for the most part, the it's really done through old fashioned stagecraft. And there's there's scene. several moments like that. There's the, there's that scene that was done, and you I can see where the, what they do. They jump cut. Yeah. And it, it just it's not even much of a jump cut. It's just a they they cut to a, a tighter shot. Yeah. But it's not that tight. It's just tight enough that it would be them out of frame. They do that there. There's the uh, the great scene when you know Mufune really starts to lose his fucking mind, and Mickey is now the spirit, mm-hmm. and and it keeps on pulling in and out, and then Mickey's there and he's mm-hmm. not there. And they finish that idea when he's back in the forest, where he basically cycles through all the possible, yeah, you know, deaths he's been responsible for and, during the course of the story. And then the final one, or not maybe not the final one, but the the. The last one is when he gets shot through the throat. Yeah. When they, uh, you know, the shot's not... Now it's, it's a difficult watching that Blu-ray blown up because you see the trick. You do see but the But the edit itself is flawless. Like, he's not moving. Yeah. No, the edit's... Like, that's why when I watched it, I, I was I audibly gasped. I'm yeah. Like, wow, that's good. It was impressive. Not like it's good, like I can't see the, I can't see the, the device, you know, that's holding it. And, and I know, I know what these look like because i've seen them yeah, before yeah. uh as far as you know tricks so sure it's not great when he comes back down though afterwards they sufficiently bloodied up yeah. so you don't see it but, so here's uh, a question for you as like you know in terms of being a purist with film and whatnot i think about this i think about how they painstakingly taking these these old films that are you know now 60 70 years old some of them criterion has taken them yeah they've they've cleaned them up they've purified them it's like would it be a horrific thing for just someone to go in there 
and just clean up that shot. Just like, just to blend in the makeup so that it looks a little bit more realistic now. Well, in, would, in, would that be well, I don't think, terrible? I think, it's, I think it's, if I might digress slightly to make, to, 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 to answer that. Hard for me not to answer that by not addressing the late 1990s and the Star Wars special editions. Yeah. Where do you, I don't know, where does it end when you, once you start doing it, it? No, no, that's not my conclusion. My, I simply was, you know, when I saw those, I was like, well, you don't need to do most of those, but I like some of them. Some of them worked. I thought they improved the battle at the end of the first film with that. Um, I, I think they destroyed the whole Mos Eisley thing and we don't talk about Greedo in this dojo, <laughs> but, but, you know, and there are a number of things that were just patently unnecessary. The end of the Empire Strike Back. I mean, I didn't need to see Vader go back to Death Star and check in to the front desk, get his toiletries, go back to the <laughs> hotel room just to break up the momentum of a wonderful end. I mean, what's that about? Uh, you know, I didn't mind them adding... Um, a uh, phallic element to uh, an otherwise female Sarlacc pit. Um, you know, that yeah. was good. But so so here I am on two sides. Mostly, I wish there were... I wish I never had to see those versions again, mostly. But <laughs> but there are other thoughts in mind. And then, then, then there were other films where they made tweaks. And, 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 but, but those were really the big... Flashpoint moment for people. Well, you can have what you want, fans, but guess what? If you could, would you? Yeah. And 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 now, I will also make a middle point by saying this. There's a guy called I think Addy Wan is his name. He happens to be located in Quebec, but he's known around the web and around the world as the guy who is putting together essentially perfect versions in his mind of all the original trilogy Star Wars films. So what he's done is he's gone back and he's he's not satisfied with the color timing at all, which he shouldn't be. Yeah, I've seen I've seen the seen new, I've seen the New Hope one. Yeah, and he's gone back and not just the color timing, he's actually gone back and fixed all the problems in them. So he's gone back and literally built models. And now and now and so in Empire when the uh when the when the snow speeders are, are with the walkers and the snow speeders are 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 flying in the close-ups with the guys in the cockpits. The, the flaps move, and not only that, they move and then match the models when they cut to the model. Like, I mean, the level to which he's trying to quote-unquote fix. Fix, yeah. Anyhow, my conclusion on all this is, I don't think anyone would notice with this. It's a simple answer. I don't think anyone would notice with this film, because so many people haven't seen it. Yeah. Well, you know, the reason I say this is because I'm getting to the point now where I'm starting to watch uh, these fil films like this with my son. And yeah, the new new generation. And so he sits yeah. there. So here we are. We, we've been watching this this what I think is a really great movie. Uh, you know, we're an hour and f half into it, hour thirty five minutes at this point, and you're just in it. And then all of a sudden that happens, and it's and like it takes and, you out of it. and it takes you out of it for a second. Yeah. And so the re and that's the only reason why I would want to fix something like that because someone like my son will sit there and go, "Oh, I can see the makeup," and it'll pull him out of it, yeah. and then shift like the flow of the movie so here's the thing these things are sharper than most people ever saw them yeah when we well, watch that, them on blu-ray that's the other thing and then and it's not the only thing about the films that one moment would not be the only things i was sitting here watching this here because <clears throat> jeremy basically has this gar gargantuan movie theater in which he runs he runs these uh these movies and and we watched them on a very no we watched them what an eight foot high 
six foot high screen, something like that. Yeah, it's big enough to appreciate it, big enough, as it should be seen in a the theater. But what I was surprised about was how much neg damage Criterion let go through. Mm. There's tons of neg damage on this. Like it's literally like I would have thought they would have cleaned it up, not with any automatic process. I know they would have been smarter as a company than that. But I thought they might have gone through and painted out issues. But it's everywhere. It's all over the place. That makes it look old mm-hmm. to me. That makes it look old. The the wipe transitions, uh, any of the sometimes some of the dissolves which go soft. It's almost impossible to fix those. But it's it you know where do you stop? Yeah. Yep. As far as as far as the close up on the neck, I see no uh, no reason not to uh, not to fix that though. And, and that's for me. It's just that one little thing where it's just like, oh, it pulls you out of the movie just enough. I'm sure Kurosawa would, saw the dailies and said, you know, and said fuck, in whatever in whatever version of fuck yeah. he would have said. And I'm sure he said the same thing when they pulled up to the castle uh, initially, and the camera operator corrected just slightly this way, and you saw a, a, a smidge of the other, of the other of the other building at the side of the castle. I'm sure he said fuck, and he got angry about it. I'm sure he said that a number of times. At one point, at one point, uh, Mufuni gets up, and the camera goes up with him a bit too high, yeah. and then comes right back down, and the take is saved. There's a lot. Of, there's a lot about the film. Like again, where do you stop? Some of these things can't be corrected, but yeah. where do you stop? Yeah. No, I, no, I, I agree. Yeah, because it's just like loads of moments, right? Where it's like the camera operation because they're operating on a very early version of a. Of whether it looks possibly like it's not even a geared head, and they're just sort of yeah. You know, oh, there's the, and, and that's the kind of stuff that I'm used to in these older movies where it's like the panning, but your, but the your isn't, isn't quite perfect. Your son still goes. This makes For it sure. look like an old movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think that you get used to the aesthetic of that. It's just what it is. Is it's a very specific visual effect that just and then because it comes so late in the movie sure. and it's not a movie. It's not like I, I had him watch uh, Night of the Living Dead. With this, right? Yeah, and and that's a movie right from the beginning. Is you know the makeup and everything is a little bit. It's pr- it's great for the time. Yeah, but it's it's that kind of stuff is in the movie in the first reel. Yeah, and so he's getting used to seeing that. And so by the time he gets to the ending, he's just used to yeah that layer of that's the world yeah that, of how the movie looks and whatnot. And so it's not pulling him out anymore. He gets pulled out early on. It's like when you see the Hitchcock cameo in the first reel, you're like, oh, now I can settle in. I'm not going to be pulled out by seeing Hitchcock later on. Yeah, yeah. But it's like when it comes so late in the movie, it just runs that risk of just even for a second pulling you out. So, I know, I just thought it'd be something interesting to ask because I don't 100% know where I land on it, but I also, but I know it wouldn't bother me. See, it's hard. I mean, because it's just the issue, and I'm talking around this too, I know that. But so because I've already answered, they think, yes, do it. But <laughs> as if we have the control criterion, we can't. But uh, uh, there's also the question of how old is an old movie to us versus versus is to our child? Like, if you think about it. So let's see. I saw The Wizard of Oz in the mid 1970s. How old was The Wizard of Oz in the mid 1970s? Yeah, it was 30, 30 or 40 years old at that point. OK, so I showed my daughter Star Wars. uh a couple months ago. Yeah. How same. old how old is Star Wars? Like 30, 40 years at this point. It's yeah. 40 years. 40 years, yeah. Star Wars is older and older a movie than was The Wizard of Oz when you first when saw I was it. when I first saw it. And that is more of a freakish thought to me just because of how the world how different the world was. Yeah. 
when the Wizard of Oz was made, I think, than it was when when I was seven or five or whenever I saw it. Anyway. Yeah. Well, even just when we watch, I mean, Night of the Living Dead is 50 years old now. You know, when yeah. we were watching, we, we realized that. But does like, it feel like an older movie? Like, you know, does Star Wars feel like an old movie to, to kids who are seven years old now? Kind of, sort of. And also because it's been treated like absolute royalty and remade in a way so many times visually in terms yeah. of the transfer and the sound and all this. Does it truly feel like a 40-year-old No, because it still feels alive because you've also got, you know, we're still telling stories even about that original first movie. You know, Rogue One is... Is really it's a companion piece to it, yeah. You know, and that was and that's two years ago. But I, the reason I mentioned that only is about Star Wars is because you still have uh, the sense, as, as I do, I, that we're showing people fairly something fairly new and fairly current, and and I think and I think they can they can also they can smell the kids that it's that it's not. So how when you look at something like this that's in black and white. You know, and 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 on so many levels, alien to them. Yeah. You know, hopefully that's the element that makes it attractive. Yeah, I I, I and my son's a bit of an exception because he's fine with older movies, slower movies, black and white. He's getting into movies with subtitles now, and they don't bother him. And even when we we did it for the podcast, uh, a friend of mine hadn't seen uh, A New Hope at all, and so I tracked down the that that cut from the gentleman in Quebec that has all the old original effects mm-hmm. and whatnot, right? And so that was the first time because my son has seen A New Hope probably a dozen times. But from these restored versions that we now have, yes, yeah. the Blu-rays. And so that was the first time he saw it with the original computer graphics on the monitors and stuff and hadn't been redone. And so it was for him, it was like watching it for the first time again. And it was fascinating just him experiencing it in a way that was different from what his brain told him he was going to see. Right. And in this dojo, are we calling it A New Hope or are we just calling it what it is, Star Wars? Oh, we, then we call it, we were calling it Star Wars. Okay. Because it, that was pre, you know, episode four, pre, you know, titling and all that kind of stuff. Which leads me to titles and the, and the original title of this film in Japanese, Spider's Web Castle. Which makes way more sense. Than, than Throne of Blood. Which means nothing, really. Outside no. of that room that's covered in blood because of the other person that was killed there. Is it's it? not a literal title, for sure. No, for sure. Yeah. But it's interesting that they would have changed the title. Well, that they would have changed it for the American release? Yeah. Oh, it makes sense to, uh, during that period. I guess Spiderweb's castle isn't as exciting as Throne of Blood. Well, his last movie, well, probably not his last movie, but Seven Samurai would have been in between, but like there were Rashomon, Seven Samurai, and now like Seven Samurai sounds sort of exciting, right? Yeah. And, you know, Spider's Web Castle doesn't sound very exciting. Throne of Blood sounds... Yeah, know, no, I... Uh, yeah, no, I don't. That's I don't more condemn theatrical. that. Yeah, yeah, but interesting nonetheless. I, I, I didn't know what to expect before I knew anything about the film many years ago from Throne of Blood, and uh, yeah, I, you know, I mean, it's. I'm trying to think of another film this reminds me of, and um, it reminds me. There's a film called Der Dibuk. Have you ever heard of it, Der Dibuk? No. I think it was a film. I think in Yiddish, very old drone film directed by Carl Dreyer. This is a famous filmmaker, European filmmaker. I could have my facts wrong, but I think it's it's probably true. Now, Der Dubik was remade as Star Trek Three, The Search right. for Spock, essentially. I mean, it, it's, they took a lot from that film. And right. what it's about is it's about basically the haunting of, you know, of somebody who's dead. The, the imprint and the 
and, and, and the weight of death upon the living. Yeah. And, uh, and the devil and getting in and possession and this sort of thing. And, uh, and these, this film, you know, Throne of Blood, Spider's Web Castle, deals with the notion of possession. Deals with possession in all its forms, really. It deals with the fact that, you know, uh, as we know, the literal version that they're possessed by, 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 by these, the elements of war. And guilt. You know, the, the guilt. Uh, his, uh, his, his lady, his, his wife. Uh, the Lady Macbeth, who that and that was what was interesting for me when I, when we were watching this, I I had a moment to myself where I was like, does she exist? Right, exactly what I was thinking. Yeah, I was thinking, and I think that's what they wanted to think. She is so creepy. It's like my thought is like, why do all the expository characters in this film have to be creepy as hell? <laughs> well, they, they explain <laughs> well, a way that, a that that the, the 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 albino in the woods is a spirit. Yes, you know, but she's like. That and that's where that she's that, the continuation. She's the, she's the no theater uh, aspect of it, where yeah, it's a bit heightened. It's a bit different. She's never really looking at him. Mm-hmm. She's just kind of talking, mm-hmm. and so it made me go, "Is she just in his head, fucking with him?" And also her teeth. I mean, her teeth are interesting because again, it's all you could argue it's all part of the makeup. But what it makes her look like is some sort of corpse, some sort of spirit. She doesn't, you know, it's, it, it, it's, it's to some degree that the, a lot of the makeup is that way, but her, her lack of emotion. Now, towards the end of the film, you realize that she's not, you know, she's not without emotion at all. Or no, she, she goes insane too. Right. Or is she, or is she, or could she be? And that's, what's great about this. They leave you kind of wondering, yeah. can spirits go insane if they do the wrong, you know, if they, if they, if they're, if they lead, lead the living in the wrong direction this is just my own hypothesis and what I was watching because so, because early on, like you, I felt this, that, you know, this is just creepy. <laughs> it's continually creepy. It's really a movie about just two people and the rest of the rest of the people in the movie are like, there's almost no, there are almost no other characters who are three dimensional. No, it's window dressing. Really? It, yeah. it, it is. It's such a small story, which is, which is what I really liked about it. Yeah. But told in like, on such a large canvas. Yeah. Yeah. But still, but really, it takes place kind of within a really... Again, we don't really see the big battle scenes. They've got a number of extras and all the costumes and, and all that kind of stuff. But it's it's still a fairly contain, really contained movie. Yeah, and even the... even even I mean, it, at a certain point, you sit there and you're hearing all of these things, even just at the beginning of the film, but by the middle and the end of the film, you've heard, you've heard in dialogue so much about what's happening outside the castle mm-hmm. or outside the grounds and the various points in the film in terms of the battles one and the and and the movement of troops and this and this. fortress one and two and yeah four and, and five and, and, you, six. and you see yeah. like and you see nothing you're too, you can be told anything and that's what's great about it the way it's the way it's set up at the beginning i said okay this is going to be all about something someone's told and of course they walk in and the spirits and they're you know but early on when they get the reports yeah, this guy's sitting there. This you know, the Lord is sitting there, and someone comes in and tells him something. You know, he doesn't have he he doesn't have any uh, any way to check YouTube or 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 you know or CNN or any way to know. He just he's just hearing it through someone else. There's no phone call. There's no evidence. The evidence is the person coming to him, and so you sense that the whole time the, the initial um, moments of the film are really about setting up how that's 
what the film is going to be about. It's going to be about, you know, people having stuff planted in their head and acting on it. And and, and that's fascinating job. too, because you could argue. And, and so for me, it's like what, what's what I love about that. And to take that a step further, it'd be fascinating if we later revealed that all those things, those five messengers or however many came along and showed up and told this story, if none of it was true. Right. And so when these guys showed up to get their promotions, they had set this in motion to get promoted, but had done none of the things and, and earned none of it. And so then, therefore, they deserved the curse that was bestowed upon them. Well, sure. That would, that would, and, and, and you could argue that that would be very interesting to see. I would worry about someone trying to remake the film that way, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but, it would, yeah. but it would make it justified that these people deserved what befell yeah, upon you'd them. You'd do that, but then you'd make, you would make a very different film. Then you'd yeah. make a real... Then it wouldn't be a creepy film. Then it'd be a horror film. Then it would be... Then there would be... Then the, the film that it is, the pace that it's at, the whole thing, I think it would have to be seriously modernized. Yeah, it's it's a different thing, but just, I, but yeah, I love yeah. that idea, and that really fits that theme of the idea of like, what do you know versus what do you think you know? Yeah. And once an idea is planted in your head, can you get it out? Yeah. And then about trust and about all these other things, uh, coming coming in and coming to fruition. And mm-hmm. I loved all that. I will say, I did find it. I was kind of surprised um, because what I love about Kurosawa too is just how kind of exciting he is as a filmmaker. And there's a lot of great action stuff going on here in sequences, but there are some of those scenes that just kind of sit and drag. Yeah, and they're meta. They're well, you haven't seen his later films yet. No, you haven't seen stuff like Ron and and yeah, for sure. No, you haven't seen his later films yet. No, no, no I haven't. And yeah. so, but it's just like even that scene when when he kills um, the Grand Lord, the Grand Lord. Yeah. Yeah, it's it takes it's time, and we're just sitting there and holding in. Yep. And the scene where he first starts going mad, he it just really, you know, we we wa- we watch him go mad for a long time. <laughs> but if you look at it's interesting because if you look at we've been talking about Bergman outside the realm of this mic, uh, yeah, really. Uh, but but you know, you look at Bergman and the pace of those films. Too. Oh yeah, Not all for of sure. Them, but it's but I mean you know going you're going back to the fifties. I mean if what. You know, but it's what the I, expectation would be. Yeah. Oh no, it, it's not uncommon for this time period, and I don't, I don't generally mind that. I just find for Kurosawa, it's it's a slower pace for him at this period of his filmmaking. If anything, I think I I take it, you know, as a as a as something that he felt was necessary to do justice to the characters. Yeah. In the in the in the framework of a story that he was adapting, that was already you know going to be a difficult sell because of it's about spirits motivating theoretically you yeah. know, real people um, or hypothetically. I mean, without me turning into a cartoon. So yeah, I, there's some other things about this that are really captivating to me now, just sort of visually. Kurosawa definitely enjoyed shooting with longer lenses. I say Kurosawa being inclusive of his designer, his photographer, but it became a, uh, a thing for him to shoot with longer lenses and to stage with very long lenses. Um, I don't know if he was quite the Tony Scott. Tony Scott was very much like more, even more so than Ridley Scott. Like it seemed like everything was on a 200 millimeter lens. Like, you know, a wide shot would be on a 200 millimeter lens or a 300 millimeter. Everything was well with, with Kurosawa. It's not quite as extreme, but it's certainly, 
that kind of staging happens a lot. And so, and you, why do you think he did that? Well, I think I think on a budget, it's it's always easier to stay tighter. Yeah, and to uh, when you don't have a lot of people, for example, and you need a huge crowd, you stay tighter. But it's probably easier to handle foreground, middle ground, and background to some degree with greater ease uh, on longer lenses because the gestures you make, they don't have to be so precise. As you go wider, you have to be much more precise mm-hmm. as far as how close people are, what you're doing. And I think he created, it's interesting, but a lot of people think you create depth with wide angle lenses, but I don't necessarily agree. Um, in black and white, there are many other elements, as you know, contrast and things of this yeah. sort. But he was dealing with fog. He was dealing with, but I think that, but I think that just staging with those longer lenses really, I don't know. I think it allows the action to, to feel be, bigger. Yeah, but also to be compelling, and 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 also and for all elements of the frame to share a space. But the, also interestingly, for a film of the period and a film that was of limited budget. And a film that's shot with really long lenses, a lot of stuff's in focus. I'm not talking about the soft shots. There are definitely yeah, yeah, some yeah. soft shots that are mistakes. Well, there's that great shot when they first show when, when they with first the first show shot the castle. Of well, yeah, yeah. Right, well, right. When, they, when they're sitting down, they're just facing each other, and the castle's in the background. Yeah. And I don't know if it's that shot, but there's a there's a shot like that in one of his movies where someone's like commenting and it's like, oh, look what a beautifully, the way you frame this is like, why did you frame it like this? Yeah. And his answer is just like, well, if I panned left, you saw the highway. If you panned right, you That's saw. Right. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So it's pretty, it's pretty straightforward in that way. But the thing that isn't, and it's very interesting about the interior stuff, you see him inside after he's been awarded the first, uh, the first sword. You see him inside this compound with his lady, and and you see the outside, the courtyard, a little bit blown out, but you still see it. Mm-hmm. And you would never see this in films of the period. They wouldn't try as much as they do, as, especially because it's so hard with longer lenses to get depth of field. Yeah. So I don't know if you noticed how sharp things could be or the attempt, even if, if the fact that we're watching it super crisp right now on Blu-ray kind of gives away the limitation a little bit yeah we do see so much and then so he shoots that way in a very it's very tough it's, that means very, lots of lights and just it's it's not an easy way to shoot but that's definitely a kurosawa trait uh, around this time and uh i find that very interesting mm-hmm. and and maybe i can't speak to why he would do it maybe one of those documentaries at the end of this. yeah i'm gonna go through them at some point i uh but I, for sure, I haven't just yet because I find there. Uh, I find by the time I'm finished watching the movie, it's usually later at night and I'm exhausted. Like <laughs> now, yeah, <laughs> and I and I need time, so I think I'm going to go back and kind of go and go through them almost. Watch just the series of them. Yeah, in oh my order. God, like what wonders? That's what's great about this. It's like you watch the movie and it's like, oh, that's great. And guess what? We actually live in a time where we can like you know research the film and don't have to go out and go through a Dewey Decimal catalog and don't have to fly to another city and get it and you know and get access to the scripts or it's just a total it's amazing and it's also heartbreaking because you also go how much longer are we going to have that before uh it kind of goes away and people stop because 
Not caring. Uh, but just for this sort of stuff? paying for it so they exist. I know. I mean, Criterion just announced they're starting their own streaming service. Yeah, which I assume will include bonus features and all these other things. You assume, but well, you would hope because also you want they had to do something to keep the discs still worth buying. And so, if they include too many features on the streaming service, then will people buy the discs? Or are they getting... What I hope isn't happening is that they're getting to a point where they, they start questioning internally whether or not the discs are worth the time and effort if they could just support themselves as a streaming service. This is a good question because this is a good question and it's worth maybe discussing for a moment. Well, to your point about Japanese cinema and sort of screenings and sort of the disposable, disposability of those screenings, as I was mentioning, and like around the period that this film was coming out in the 40s and the 50s and possibly the 60s, there was still the the the, advent, the advantage of exclusivity. You weren't going to see it anywhere else, and after it was gone, you weren't going to see it necessarily on TV the next day, or any time in the next few months. In other words, you still had to go to that theater to see that movie with that star. You couldn't see that somewhere else. Yeah. What we're dealing right now with Netflix. And the notion of release windows is something which people have been threatening for years. It's something that Steven Soderbergh, about 10 years ago, was saying, yeah. I want to do this with this Julia Roberts movie he made for... The Full Frontal? Yes. Yeah. And it was, the, I think, was released simultaneously or with... No, that was, that or... was um, Bubble. He made Bubble, this little right. art film called Bubble that was, right. the, that was the first day and date release. That's right. And we've had little experiments like that. I say little because Steven Soderbergh being an accomplished filmmaker is not a studio no and not and so but what we're what we're dealing with right now is is Netflix threatening to pull the trigger on something that people have been threatening to do for many 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 years which is remove that window and basically say okay well first of all for films other than Roma and The Irishman to say well we're not even giving them theatrical release but okay if we give you this theatrical release It'll be because you can play in one theater and qualify for Oscars, I suppose, and whatnot. Reviews and whatnot. Reviews and all that sort of thing. And at the same time, film lovers won't hate us as much. But that's small potatoes. Basically, we're just, you know, we, we don't care about the release window. We don't care about exclusivity. And that is something which I think is a huge mistake. And the reason I think it's a mistake has nothing to do with the fact that I am whatever age I am. It has nothing to do with the fact that uh, uh, I think that I'm better at this than someone else. It has to do with the fact that since the dawn of time, humans have told stories. And they said, come over to my place so I can tell you my story in my way, in my cave, in front of my fire, with my children, and do this. If you could then... If, if someone told you just before you walked into that cave, before they lit up that fire in that beautiful, wonderful place of darkness where anything could happen in the next few minutes, if, someone, if some other caveman would knock on your door and say, hey, I'm doing the same thing at my cave and I'm doing the same thing at my cave and the same thing at my cave. Well, to one extent, that would kill the notion of exclusivity, but it really wouldn't because they're different people. And different caves and different stories. Different caves and different stories. So the notion of exclusivity, and who's best at telling a story? Well, you would know you lived in that town. You know who would be put on the best show. You hope to know it. 
so anyway, uh, we're but we're going we're going too far with this, this analogy. The point is is that the notion of exclusivity has existed from the dawn of time, not just the dawn of theatrical releases, uh, uh, certainly from the time pure you know the, the origins of entertainment as mm-hmm. that the human race has has known it, or other races, or and I think that when you play with that, you play you know you have to you you I just don't think it's a good thing. Yeah, I don't think it's a good thing because it, you know, it it tells me it, I've already heard people say, well, I just, you know, I'd love to see it in 65 mil, but I can see it for free tomorrow. Yeah. Now. I will say, because I went through this one when I was at, uh, I, I got a pass for TIFF this year. And so when I was there, there was a number of films. I, you know, there's always more films than you have time to actually watch. And I will say there's a whole bunch that as soon as I realized there were Netflix films, it's like, oh. I'm going to be able to see this for sure in the next couple of months, mm-hmm. if not sooner. I don't need to kill myself to see this. That said, something like Roma, I went out of my way to make sure I saw that. And there was a couple others that I still saw anyway, even though I knew they were going to be on Netflix. Uh, but that was just more because the timing worked out, and it was the one I wanted to see the most out of that grouping of films. Uh, but it did make me stop ba- step back just like that and go, huh, is this a movie I have to see in the theater, or is this okay to just watch it on Netflix? So you look at the Irishman and you think about the fact now that now the fact that Roma has secured this little release means they gotta put the Irishman in Well they, they kinda set standards. a standard. Now they have, exactly. And They've for set some important precedent. The fact is, if if you like mob movies, this is like the ultimate idea. Whether the film is just is good or okay, or even a failure, it's gonna be a Martin Scorsese picture with every single major mob star of a mob movie yeah. still alive it, you know in this day and age I want to see that and I want to see that in in a theater I do but that's just it and you're also talking about a filmmaker who still walks around with a light meter to ch- make sure that the, the yeah. projection rating is high enough when it's screening a premiere of his film yeah and, you know, and, I, it, and I love Mr. Scorsese but he knows he's a, of a dwindling group of people yeah of which I am included I'm part of that tribe I'm part of the same people you know, I want look. Twenty years ago, when people stopped raising, when people stopped having, cur- uh, not people, but when theaters, some of the nicest theaters in town, stopped uh, moving their curtains, closed at the end of credits and open again at the beginning of credits, and making you know showpersonship a thing. I was I cried a little. Yeah. You know, I did, I cry every time they take away, they take away one little bit. When when mass releasing became a thing in the in the early '90s, uh, very late '80s, early '90s, and it did not become something where you had to go to a certain theater or one or two theaters in town and catch a movie. No, you could see it everywhere and in the suburbs at exactly the same time. I cried a little because the exclusivity of that also meant that the people who were shooting, who were presenting that, who had the, the, this one print of this film, had to put on a better show. It, it, all eyes were on them. And usually that's what the theaters felt. They felt that, that show, show personship was great. So they actually sent in technicians to make sure that the sound heads on the 70 millimeter projectors were in fine shape. They had test films. They'd spend a whole day, right? They, they just forget about whatever was playing there the day before uh, uh, the film would open. They lose money in order to make sure that their best foot was forward. Mm-hmm. So I missed that, and, 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 you know, and I would like to see that return. But um, until, it, until it 
until we care again uh, as a population about going to movies a little more or until Netflix changes and I don't think don't know that that until forces change somehow I don't it's, know that it's, we'll ever it's still too that. early to know it's still too but for me it was just more like my 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 worry was more about the idea of like they're not I think they released Stranger Things on, on a disc because there was this public cry for it but it's just this idea that if and when Netflix goes away uh, what will happen to all these films that like your Buster Scruggs you're like I've got you know, my criteria, my, I've got my Coen Brothers collection, and I'm like, am I ever going to get a Buster Scruggs disc? If that happens, I don't think that, first of all, I don't think that it will be that difficult to get the masters out. But, 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 but the notion of collecting your own thing, the notion that this is a precious thing, this is something that, going back a while we've been concerned about yeah as soon as things you know now that a company is actually taking that you know and you know i'd love to see netflix do something to, similar to what amazon does with their their disc on demand where it's just like i yeah. can i can pay a little bit more and say look i want a dvd of a blu-ray of that and they can make them to order they don't have to make put them in a giant warehouse Perhaps. and have five thousand copies of them just make them as people order them Perhaps not with the Coens, but with the critical mass, if there is one, of the Irishman and of Roma yeah. and a few of these things, which they're paying through the nose to make. The, and, and, to, and you've already got the masters. It's like to make discs, it's not that... They could do it. And yeah. th- believe me, they come from the, they, they come from the disc from the disc world. That's what Netflix yeah. was. Netflix was... They got a guy a that can make those. We're sending, we're sending you discs in the mail and you're going to send them back to us. Well, they no. still do that. They still have their, their, their disc customers. They do. They do. And the thing is, it, it's just, it's, it is harder to manufacture now. And a lot of, like, for example, a lot of CDs aren't even manufactured in the United States anymore. But, um, but the, uh, but, but whether they'll do this or not, I think it needs, I think, I think in one way, them spending big may prove that that you know on these bigger ticket items that people do have an appetite for them because a Scorsese film that you can't collect not that not to, not not for any reasons to put down the Coen Brothers yeah but Scorsese's audience is probably going to be a little bit bigger. oh for sure yeah so like come on Cura Ron as an example I love him most of his films I love no question but he is doesn't fall in the same. Um, I won't, I, maybe that's a bad thing to say. Maybe that's not true. I don't know where Kieran falls in terms of collectors, but I know that I that I would be angry if I couldn't buy the Irishman. Yeah, even though I haven't seen it yet. But that but it's just still the idea. It's even just for us us nerdy completionists who go. I have a gap on my wall now. Yeah, on my shelf where that movie should go, but I literally someone won't let me put it there, and that. You know, upsets me as a as a as a film nerd who likes yeah. to completionist and collect entire works of filmographies. Mm-hmm. So we'll see, we'll see. But it's it's, it's interesting. It's just the, the one stat that I, I was shocked to to learn was that you know the average blockbuster when it was open and operating had ten thousand titles for rental in each store. Mm-hmm. Netflix currently right now has three thousand titles available to rent. And almost nothing below, nothing uh, before 2000, the year 2000. Yeah. It, their, their list of classics, I'm constantly going wishing I'll add one or two. Not that there's no other way to get them, but there really is almost no other way to get them easily. Um, yeah. 
No, but we are we are fast approaching this weird like era where uh, content is kind of unavailable outside of piracy. Well, it's a sort of appropriate because politically truth is also unavailable. <laughs> <laughs> and history as well. Uh, you know, um, but anyway, uh, no, I think that uh, I think it's a difficult it's a difficult time to be a film fan. It's also weird because um, you and I are, are both not um, 18 and at home and living with our parents and jobless. We're yeah. both we're both capable of having a bit of disposable income. To not you know buy up the entire inventory of Criterion discs ever made, but we we like collecting things yep. like this, and so we have the money to spend Netflix. You know, <laughs> we have the money. To, we we are not in a zone where you would be producing product, and certainly if you're producing it on demand, and that's what I mean. If they if they just because yeah. that's how Amazon works now. Uh, you know, my my I'll do my own plug like my film The Go Getter is that. You know, Amaz- the the distributors part of their deal with Amazon is that they make the things as people want them. They don't have a warehouse full of these discs, right? But if you order them, they'll make it, and it's on it's it's, it's a per order basis. Now, that I was going to say one other thing, which is that which is interesting. But you know what? It's redundant. You make your point well. Yeah. Anyway, uh, final thoughts. <laughs> We're circling around. No, this is great. This, uh, we haven't really had a conversation like this on the show, so it's really, really... Um, yeah, no, I, I, I th- yeah, I've had a lot of fun. My final thoughts... I don't have any final thoughts about... Kur- somebody like Kurosawa is very... Or, or Throne of Blood or anything that a great filmmaker makes, it's very hard to have fun. If I might yeah. address it literally, it, it's very hard... You have hard final to, thoughts a week from now. I get very it. Hard, yeah, yeah. Very hard, no, I, I won't ever, I hope, have final thoughts on it. It's always great to revisit or to visit for the first time uh, a title by a great filmmaker or a filmmaker that you are aware of. But in the case of uh, Kurosawa, it's it's wonderful to find a title or two that you have, in my case, that I haven't seen. Yeah. Um, and what can be said? I mean, there's, some, there's a reason that they're great. There's, there are some distinctive characteristics that make them uniquely of this, of this filmmaker, uniquely of this era. Um, can never get enough Mifuni. That's just it. You know? and, and I find I've seen enough Kurosawa to know that it's like, it, you know, any of the new ones that I go to watch, or one, whether it's a newer film in his filmography or just new to me, I know it's never going to be terrible. It might not be my favorite film of his, but it's going to be entertaining and it's going to be well-crafted. Yeah, and it's going to be, and it's going to have a grasp on tone, as you'll see with a lot of his, a lot of, like even his last film. Um, the the other thing I was going to say is a stock company, which includes people other than Mifuni, like one of a favorite of mine, Takashi Shimura, um, who played the lead role in Ikiru, uh, in addition to uh, being in The Seven Samurai and, and many others. You know, I just love watching the guy because, like, you just know what role he's going to be, and at the, he's the guy. He's he's the general of the army at the end, and of course, he's at the beginning. He's the one who comes up with a plan in the, in the courtyard, and but before he says anything, his sort of his eyes kind of flutter and he kind of sighs and he gets into it. And I just love watching these things because the thing about Kurosawa, I guess, to conclude on this point, is that Kurosawa wasn't just about one point of view or one actor or star. Uh, in this case, referring to Mifuni, 
but he was about a world of ideas, a world about a world of, of just of influences. And you hear the weirdest musical cues sometimes in his hmm. films that come out of nowhere. And some of the styles, he was very interested in the, the, the use of repurposing the bolero in different forms, uh, musically in his films. Just the point is influences. It, 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 you know, you can tell the man was influenced and his writers and his team by so much more than just other movies. Yeah. Um, they lived life. They had, I mean, just the era they lived in during World War II in Japan was, yeah, they watched their country be destroyed and had to be rebuilt. And they were still making films while this was going, while that that was going on. A lot of formative Kurosawa. And that's what makes it, that's what makes a great artist's work interesting is that it, it's never just about regurgitating, um, you know, something from the same medium. It's about taking pieces of, of from everywhere and uh, processing it through their what makes them unique. And uh, yeah, I just, I just, you know, so I don't know if I could be more specific about Throne of Blood other than we've already we've already been. Yeah. Uh, if anyone's really still listening at this point, <laughs> bless you. <laughs> we'll be happy. We'll be happy to to phone. With um, for with the five minute dissertation uh, for five bucks, if you like. Other than that, I'm, I think I'm out of here. All right. Well, thanks for coming over. <laughs> Thank you. Let's all go to the. Thanks for joining us for Throne of Blood. Black Hole Films is a proud member of the That Shelf Podcast Network. You can listen to other episodes of our show and other That Shelf podcasts on thatshelf.com. Please subscribe, leave comments, spread the word, do all the things that let others know you like the show and how they can check it out. You can find me on Twitter, at Lon Jeremy, and go to Facebook and join the group Black Hole Films. And until next time, go watch something you've never seen before. Thanks. Let's all go to the lobby.